0: Yes, we are going to be looking at the Bible together, and if you want to follow and don't have a Bible with you, we have some that you can borrow. All you have to do is raise your hand, and the girls will bring one to you. So if you'd like to borrow a Bible, uh, just raise your hand, the girls will bring one to you. And while that's happening, just to uh, draw your attention to, I'm sure you've already seen it in newsbite but on the back page in the bottom left-hand corner, there's a mention of a book there um, called The Unquenchable Flame. And uh, that's on our bookstore downstairs today. Uh, It looks like this. And um, it's it's the sort of thing that maybe you would look at it and you think, hmm, not really my scene. It's church history. Exciting, huh? It's about the Reformation. You might say, the what? Well, it's, it's so important for us that we know where we've come from. We know what people have suffered in order to bring us to the point where we are today. Uh, we need to have some grasp on what God has done in the past to understand some of the things that are happening now or need to happen now. Uh, and this book is not dry history. It's, very, uh, it's a very easy read, which is why we, we thought to feature it. Uh, to make it available at a discounted price today. It's normally £8.99. It's available today for just £7.20. And if you would never normally think of reading such a book, can I say you're just the person who perhaps should go and get a copy of this. Can I warmly commend it to you? To hear what people have fought for, how they've suffered, so that we can enjoy God now and and know uh, what we do know, it's inspiring stuff. And it's important. So, can I commend that to you? The unquenchable flame. Loads of copies on the books that are downstairs, especially discounted price to make it available uh, to as many as possible. Just seven pounds twenty instead of nine ninety nine. So, let's turn now to the scriptures, uh, to the Book of Romans in the New Testament, Romans, chapter three. And I'm going to read from verse 21, Romans 3, verse 21. But now a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. been looking at this passage now for uh, several sessions, looking at how God has made it possible for us to know Him, how God has made it possible for people who have offended Him, people who have sinned, to actually have a relationship with a holy God. And so we've looked at things like justification and redemption. And last week, a word that isn't in the text, but it's, um, behind the text, this word propitiation. Incidentally, after last Sunday, uh, when, after the message, someone came up to me um, and discreetly asked me the question that maybe many people would have liked to have asked, but no one else did. Uh, well, those who are taking notes maybe might have wanted to ask. Someone came up to me and said, how do you spell Propitiation. So I'd be interested to see the notes from last week to see what creative spellings there were there, but never mind. So we've been looking at all of those. words, seeing what God has done for us. And now Paul moves on, or we're going to move on to see something else that Paul says that God did for us in the death of Christ. And it's an unexpected thing, perhaps. We wouldn't have thought this was central to the whole thing, but Paul says halfway through verse 25, talking about God giving his son to suffer divine anger in our place, he did this to demonstrate his justice. He did this to demonstrate his justice. goes on to say, because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just, and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. As we think of the cross, we can think of so many different things that are happening there, but would you have thought, actually it's all about justice? Well, it's not all about justice, it's about many things. But it is about justice, which as I say, perhaps wouldn't be the thing that comes immediately to mind. But if you read through the Bible, as you dip into the Bible here and there, however you treat this wonderful book, you'll see so many references to justice. Indeed, it's foundational as far as God is concerned. Uh, Several places it says this, but one place we can look at, Psalm 97. Psalm 97 and verse uh, 2, the psalm is speaking about God's rule, God's reign, the kind of king that he is. And it says in Psalm 97, And verse 1, the Lord reigns, let the earth be glad, let the distant shores rejoice. There's the statement about God, he's the king, the Lord reigns. gives rise to the question, what kind of king? Is he some kind of uh, bully? Is he a despot? Is he a cruel ruler? Is he a good ruler? Well, it goes on to say, clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of His throne. The Lord reigns. What kind of king? Well, His throne is founded on righteousness and justice. The Lord reigns. All the world belongs to Him. He rules over everything. And His throne is a just one. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. That's been the case, uh, that's been the understanding right from the beginning. In in Genesis, you have a strange story, really, of Abraham pleading with God for two desperately immoral cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. And as Abraham is pleading with God for those cities, in verse 25 of Genesis 18, we find Abraham saying, far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. He says, far be it from you, will not the judge of all the earth do right? Yes, God's throne is a throne of justice. Abraham is saying, you can't possibly treat the righteous and the wicked in the same way. That isn't right. Will not the judge of all the world do right? At the center of everything in this world, at the end of everything, there is justice. So you look around the world, it might not look like it. Nationally, internationally, also personally, we can see things we think, that's not fair. But at the center of it all, at the end of it all, there is ultimate justice. Think how terrible it would be if when we got to the end of life, suffering all the knocks that life launches at us, at the end of life we come before the throne of God and it's empty. Imagine if there were not a judge. If there were not someone saying this is right and that is wrong and justice will be done. If there were no justice, everything falls apart. But there is justice. God's throne is a throne of justice. And he loves justice. Many of the prophets are really taken up with the theme of justice. Isaiah 61 verse 4 Isaiah 61, sorry, verse 8, God says, I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and iniquity. I, the Lord, love justice. And that's why we see God acting in the way He does through Scripture. That's why right back in Exodus, we read of Him hearing the cry of His people, the Hebrews, who are suffering cruel injustice in Egypt. They're being tyrannized by the cruel regime there. And he hears their cry and he intervenes. He intervenes to bring justice. To give the bully a blooded nose and to rescue his people. That's what happens. He's a God of justice. He intervenes to save the oppressed. And obviously, the most impressive and mighty intervention is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to bring justice. Here in uh, Romans chapter three, where it says he did this to demonstrate his justice. That's, it's a good translation, but actually translators always have to decide quite how to do things because the word that is translated justice earlier on in verse 21 was translated righteousness. It's the same word. And translators always have to look at a word and think, now, what's the best meaning in this context? It's about rightness. Justice is when God looks at something and he says, that's not right. One of the images that you'll find in the Bible is of the plumb line. You may or may not be familiar with what a plumb line is. Let me just explain for those who don't know. A plumb line is a heavy weight, normally lead, on the end of a piece of string. When you hold it up, that piece of string will always be straight. And a plumb line can be used, for example, if you you are hanging wallpaper. You've got your first roll of wallpaper, you wanna make sure it falls straight. How do you make sure you get a straight line? A plumb line. If you you have made something, you wanna make sure it's upright. You can have a spirit level, but you could use a plumb line. And the thing with a plumb line is you can't ever put a bend in it. It will always be straight. It's got a heavy weight and it falls. God has a plumb line, as it were, and he holds it against people and situations and says, that's not right. And justice is when God deals with what isn't right. His throne is founded on justice he says, I, the Lord, loves love justice because He is right. God is always right. And He tests things. He looks for justice. And so as I've said, many of the prophets in the Old Testament are speaking against injustice. The prophet Isaiah, well, one could look at any of them, but we were in Isaiah 61, so go back to Isaiah chapter 1. And you hear the prophets bringing the Word of God. Verse 16, or end of verse 15, God says to His people through the prophet, your hands are full of blood. Wash, make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. God sees the vulnerable, the powerless, being bullied by the powerful. There is no justice. Those who can bribe the judges get a kind of justice, but it isn't justice. The poor get no justice because they can't afford it. God says, stop doing wrong, learn to do right. He's holding the plumb line up against the nation. He says, that's not right. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be as white as snow. God is concerned about injustice. In that same chapter, verse 23, says, Your rulers are rebels, companions of thieves. They all love bribes, chase after gifts. They don't defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case doesn't come before them. God says, therefore, I'll turn my hand against you. God looks for justice, and he hears the cry of those who are being cruelly treated, those who are being oppressed, those who are being bullied. God is a God of justice, and he's promised through the prophet there, verse 26, I will restore your judges as in days of old, your counsellors as at the beginning. Afterwards, you will be called the city of righteousness justice, righteousness. The two are linked together. God hates injustice and intends to bring righteousness. Very similar to Isaiah, but perhaps a little bit more punchy, is the prophet Amos. Amos is a kind of blunt man. He calls a spade a spade. Amos 5 verse 12 He says, I know how many are your offenses, how great your sins. You oppress the righteous, take bribes. You deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Therefore, the prudent man keeps quiet in such times, for the times are evil. Amos is saying anyone with wisdom just keeps quiet because uh, to speak up is dangerous. It's a time of great injustice. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. God says, hate evil, love good. Maintain justice in the courts. And then the famous words in verse 24, let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness, righteousness like a never failing stream. God's cry, let justice be poured out. God hates injustice. And as far as God is concerned, a nation only prospers... When there's justice. Because God's throne is a throne of justice. Now that's God. His throne is a throne of justice. He loves justice. He looks for justice. He holds his plumb line against nations, against systems and societies. He says, that's not right. Therefore, as his people, Christians are in the forefront of those standing up for the oppressed. Those who see the powerless being bullied. And there's something about God's spirit in us that will cause us to react. It can be in terms of things happening just generally, politically, socially. It can just be in a one-on-one thing where you see someone being badly treated by the system. They don't have the power to speak up for themselves. They don't know how to do it. And you just feel indignant. It's right to do something. It's right to be involved in, in things politically and socially and so on. To stand up for the oppressed because God does that. God holds his plumb line against our nation. And God sees where there is oppression. And God cares about justice. We, it's right to get our hands dirty. It's right to get involved. It's right to speak out on issues. Again, read your church history. And you'll see so often it has been Christians who the Spirit of God stirs them to see a situation and say, that's not right. And they give their lives to put it right. Now you might say, that's a long, long way away from Romans chapter 3. No, it isn't. God loves justice. And God holds his plumb line, not only against societies, but against people. And he says, you're not right. You're not right. And God, therefore, does something about it. And the cross demonstrates God's justice, but in a particular way. It says here, He does this to demonstrate His justice because in His forbearance, He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Justice means that what is not right must be dealt with. What is out of line must be punished. But Paul is saying you can look back at those who lived before Jesus came and you see people who are apparently friends of God, but what about their sin? If the only means of sin being dealt with is the cross of Jesus Christ, what about those who lived before He came? They're not saved through faith in Jesus, surely. They lived before he came. What about Abraham, who's called a friend of God? What about David, a king after God's own heart, who served the purpose of God in his generation? What about these great heroes? Did God bend the plumb line? Did God just overlook things and say, well, it doesn't matter? Because if so, there's no justice. If so, the judge of all the earth does not do right. He is prepared to turn a blind eye. Now, in a way, justice is meant to turn a blind eye. The central criminal courts in London, the Old Bailey, for those who ever venture south, I know it's uncharted territory for many of you, but for those who ever go south in London, there is the Old Bailey, and on the domed roof of the Old Bailey, there's the Statue of Justice, and she stands there with the balances in her hand to weigh issues and blindfold. In other words, to say, not not looking at what people look like, whether they're wealthy or poor or whatever, but just weighing the issue. Justice has to be impartial. But turning a blind eye to something is another matter. Did God turn a blind eye to these heroes, these saints in the Old Testament? When you look at... David, who served the purpose of God in his generation. Yeah, but he killed a man. He committed adultery. Abraham, the friend of God, yet allowed his wife to marry someone else because he wasn't prepared to own up that she was his wife. These guys were not perfect. Hold the plumb line against them, and they're out of line. Then, why did God accept them? Did he just overlook things? Were If if the guilty are acquitted, there's no justice. Justice has been denied. So, Paul here refers to those whose sins were, as it were, overlooked. They were passed over. Sins committed beforehand were left unpunished. Maybe then, it wasn't that God turned a blind eye, but maybe there isn't only one way to be saved. Maybe the sacrifices that they offered actually were a kind of plan B, if you like. Maybe that worked, and maybe on the basis of animal sacrifices, that dealt with their sin. In other words, there's more than one way to be saved. What are we to make of it? Well, on that matter of animal sacrifices, if you read the book of Hebrews, you'll find, no, that can't be the case Hebrews 9 and verse 13 says the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean. Sanctify them so they are outwardly clean. Outwardly clean. Don't deal with what's inside. That's no substitute. There is only one way. But then what about these who lived before the cross? No, what Paul is saying is God presented His Son as a propitiation through faith in his blood to demonstrate his justice. It's a demonstration of justice, not of injustice. It's a demonstration of justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. In other words, those sins of the likes of Abraham, Moses, David, the prophet Isaiah indeed, or Amos, or any of these. God looked at their sin. He did not turn a blind eye. He held his plumb line up to them and saw, you have sinned. That is not right. And then it's as if he said, I'll deal with that later. Kids maybe will know sometimes when their parents have said that to you. I will deal with you later. (laughs) It's not something you want to hear them say. It means something unpleasant is going to happen. And... God looked at these and he saw their sin and he said, I'll deal with that later. And he did. At the cross. Sin is dealt with at the cross. Nothing is overlooked. Nothing is just excused. As if, well that's only a small sin. No, the plumb line has no bend in it. The plumb line is absolutely straight. It is God's rightness. And he holds his plumb line to us. And he says, that's not right. I'll deal with it later. That's what he said to those who lived before the cross. To ignore wrongdoing in any shape or form, would never be right. And God is always right. Only the death of Jesus can deal with sin. Only the death of Jesus can cancel sin. And it's at the cross that sin was dealt with. And so those who lived before Christ looked down through history towards Christ and they believed in the coming one. They believed in the one who had come. Abraham believed in the one who had come. Do you remember when that mysterious, terrifying incident when Abraham's faith is tested to the limit and will he offer his son Isaac? And Isaac is saying to his father, where is the sacrifice? And Abraham says, God will provide himself a lamb for the sacrifice. Think, hey Abraham, what, what are you seeing there? What are you understanding there? God will provide himself a lamb and God himself comes. The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Abraham looks into the future. There's one coming. Moses looked forward into the future and saw the one who was coming. He said, the Lord is going to raise up a prophet. He said, like me, you'll listen to him. The prophet, the great prophet who is going to come. David looked forward to the one who is coming. The Lord said to my Lord. So he's, he sees the coming one. They're, they're looking forward to the cross. We look back to the cross. The cross stands in the center of time. The place where sin is dealt with. The only place where sin is dealt with. They believed into the future. And they believed in Jesus. There is only one sacrifice for sin, and justice is therefore vindicated. If God were ever found in any detail to be unjust, actually the fabric of society would collapse. People often say in a cynical kind of way that there ain't no justice in this rotten world. (laughs) And sometimes we can feel like that. There's no justice in this world. Yeah, but there is. There's ultimate justice. That's what holds everything together. The fact there is a judge. And all will appear before him. If he were unjust, then, well, God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. But if he doesn't, if he overlooks sin, if he excuses things, then what holds everything together? God is the judge of all the earth and He does what is right. And He always has done what is right and the cross demonstrates His justice. God did, did this to demonstrate His justice because in His forbearance, He had passed over the sins committed beforehand. And Paul goes on, He did this to demonstrate His justice now at the present time. So that is true for those who lived before Christ. Their sin dealt with those who are believing in Jesus, those who had faith in the one who is to come, their sin dealt with at the cross. And for us now, living after the cross, the cross just demonstrates justice now where we are. Our sin, before our conversion, since our conversion, all our sin, dealt with at the cross. God deals with sin. Sin must be punished. Nothing can be passed over. And sin fully punished in the death of Jesus. Him taking all of our guilt and suffering in our place. Now, it's a basic principle of justice that you don't punish the same crime twice. That's justice. The same offense can't be brought before the courts twice if it's been dealt with once. If all of our sin is dealt with at the cross, then there is nothing more for us to face. Indeed, John, in his first letter, in 1 John chapter 1, puts it like this, verse 9, if we confess our sins, and note the words, He is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just. John says it's a simple matter of justice. Because Jesus suffered in our place, those of us who are believing in Him, because Jesus suffered in our place, it's a simple matter of justice now We're forgiven because it was punished. Sin never overlooked. It's always punished. But if it was punished in Christ, then we are free. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The great liberating message here for those who have believed in Jesus that everything before our conversion, since our conversion, into the future, until the day we face God, it is wonderfully dealt with by the death of Jesus Christ. And therefore, we can come to God with confidence expecting to receive from Him as justice. For sin to be punished, and yet somehow guilt still to hang over us is not justice. Because throne is a throne of justice. And He loves justice. But justice is more than that word would seem to indicate. It's about God, God's plumb line. It's about God saying, that's not right. God loves justice. He hates oppression. We saw, just referred to in the Old Testament, God seeing the situation when the Hebrews are in Egypt and God, as it were, from heaven says, that's not right. And He comes down to deliver His people. When Jesus came, that's God again coming and saying, this situation is not right. And of course, the plumb line is held against our lives and our sin is exposed. And we realize we need a Savior. And we realize that's why Jesus died. He died to save us. But it's actually wider than that. God is not only concerned with sin. God is concerned with what's right. And so when Jesus started into his ministry, he, in a loud voice, delivers his manifesto. And it's about what's right or what isn't right. And his manifesto comes out of Isaiah. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he's anointed me to preach good news, the gospel, to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, there it is, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It's as if Jesus is standing up there and saying, justice. He sees people who are oppressed. He sees all that's going on. You see, the root cause of our problem is the devil. It's the devil who tyrannizes. It's the devil who, the Bible says, is the prince of this world. And he's a bully. He's a liar. He's a murderer. He's a cheat. And God sees, in the Old Testament, God saw people in Egypt being bullied by the Egyptian uh, regime being made to be slave labor didn't they were disposable they were just units of labor didn't matter if they died no one cared and god said that's not right he sees the oppressed but there's a bigger oppression than that there's what the devil does in god's world and god looks at a world under the power of the evil one he sees people oppressed with fears Oppressed with addictions, with habits, just unable to ever please God, sin. He sees the whole thing and he says, that is not right. He holds his plumb line against his world and says, that's not what I intended to be. And he sees people suffering under stuff as if this is normal. And God says, this is not normal, it's not Right? You're not meant to be like this. This is not how life is intended to be lived. And Jesus comes with the manifesto, anointed to preach good news to the poor. We're all poor. To proclaim freedom for the prisoners. They think prison is normal. It's where they're supposed to be. That's what life is like. No, it's freedom. Recovery of sight for the blind to release the oppressed who don't even realize they're oppressed. They think you've just got to put up with it, haven't you? No, says God. It is not right. And of course, in all of that, the most serious problem, the fact that we can't please God and we're sin. In sin, we're slaves of sin. And it's not right. It's not right to live like that. Jesus came to set us free from that But the freedom is more than just forgiveness and knowing we'll go to heaven ultimately. God still looks at issues in our lives and he says that's not right. And he wants us to live right. Not just to know we're forgiven, but to actually conquer sin. No longer slaves of sin. Paul's going to go on to speak about that by chapter 6 if we ever get there. He says it's not right. I want you to live right want things to change in your life. But other things, also that where Satan is oppressing people, bullying people, spoiling things, getting people captive to habits and afflictions, God says it's not right. In Luke chapter 13, you read just an example of God's heart as demonstrated by Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is in a, a difficult situation in a way. It's a, the Sabbath day and Jesus is in a synagogue. And he sees there a woman who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years, bent over, couldn't straighten up. Difficult situation because Jesus is about to heal her and it's in the synagogue and it's on the Sabbath and the legalistic Uh, Religious people around are going to say that's working on the Sabbath. You're not supposed to do that. But Jesus is more concerned about God saying, that's not right. And he sees this woman, calls her over and says, woman, you are set free from your infirmity. He put his hands on her. Immediately, she straightened up and praised God. Predictably. Predictably. The people around are indignant, not thrilled at a miracle, but indignant that their rules are being broken. Jesus justifies what he's done. He says, shouldn't this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath from what bound her? bound for 18 years, shouldn't she be set free? He holds his plumb line to this woman's life. Yes, she's bent over, but she's bound. It's not right. It's not right. God sees situations that we regard as normal. God sees situations that we've learned to live with. Things may be habits, physical conditions, whatever. People who live their lives under fear of this or that. And they think, well, yeah, my parents were like it, my grandparents were like it. And we think, no, this is normal. And God says, it isn't right. You are being oppressed. You're being bullied. This is not my purpose for your life. And God has a manifesto of freedom. God demonstrates justice. God demonstrates His justice at the cross. We see there the Son of God coming into our situation, living as a man like us, dying. Now, death, well, that's normal, but rising from the dead is not normal. And he rose from the dead to show we're not living in the normal anymore. We're living in freedom. We're living where the power of death is broken, and therefore the fear that comes, uh, is associated with death, that's also broken. It's a great cry of freedom. And at the cross, God is demonstrating his justice. He loves justice. His throne is a throne of justice. Therefore, those who sin need to flee to him to be saved. He holds his plumb line against our lives. And the plumb line cannot be bent. Sin must be dealt with. And Jesus wonderfully deals with it. It's going to be punished one way or the other, either in Christ or horrifically in us. We need a Savior. Jesus came to demonstrate justice, but also to open a whole new life of God's rightness. What God declares to be right, where we can live right, where we can be set free from the bullying tactics of the devil. People's heads are so often down and people are under things that they should not be under. That woman was in the synagogue on the Sabbath. Guess, been there every Sabbath. No one did anything about her condition. Well, that's normal. Jesus says it's not right. And he sets her free. Then, of course, the issue is as he holds his plumb line against your life, as he holds his plumb line against mine, what does he say? And he says it with mercy, and he says it with wonderful grace. And are there things that you regard as normal? And he says, that's not right. And he's got power to change it. There are things that you've regarded as, well, that's how it is. It's, it's in our family. <laughs> God says, no, it's not right. And he wants to set you free. He wants to set you free from hopelessness. He wants to set you free from fear. He wants to set you free from physical things. And God says, that's not right. Most of all, he wants to set you free to live right, to be holy, not to have the same besetting sin the same failure that you just kind of give up and you think, well, I've tried. because God says, it's not right. Jesus came with a manifesto. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me. He said, he's anointed me to preach good news. And it is. It's good news for people who think, no, this is normal. He says, it's not. It is not right. Jesus came then to demonstrate God's Justice. Fearful. God is just. But also a declaration of justice to those who are suffering. Think there's no justice in this world. Oh, yes, there is. The Savior has come and he is the Lord and he's come to set people free. The good news that we have is a message of freedom. We'll preach that in terms of the gospel. We'll manifest it maybe in terms of just things. Maybe your job brings you into situations where you're bringing help to those who are oppressed. Well, go for it. This is the gospel. This is the kingdom of God. Withstanding the bully, withstanding the oppressor. Maybe just in terms of dealing with neighbors or whatever. You can stand up for the powerless against people who are bullying them, people who are making them suffer. That's the gospel. But God also has freedom for people here this morning. We need to receive it. We've already known in our worship time this morning. Just God wants to pour out his spirit. And the Spirit comes to set people free. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. What does he want to do? Let's pray.